Today I want you to look at, um, with me, the purpose of the church. And this is just climactic in the sense that this is what Jesus was leading up to, Matthew was leading up to, excuse me, in this whole book of the Gospel of Matthew. He was leading up to these, basically, four verses that we're going to look at today. It took us a while to get here, but we're finally here. <laughs> so... Uh, we got some exciting things planned for the new year and, and uh, getting through the Prophecy Conference and the holidays. Uh, we'll make it through all that and then uh, still praying about what to uh, delve into next, what book of the Bible to start the new year with. But we will uh, cross that bridge when we get to it. We've got to get out of Matthew first. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's read the first or the last uh, four verses of Matthew beginning in Matthew chapter 16, or chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We could understand all of the Gospel of Matthew, and if we misunderstand these last four verses, it's all in vain. We've missed the entire book. So maybe you haven't been here up to this point. That's okay. If you get this message, you'll get the whole book. It's the, really the, the climax of the Gospel of Matthew. And really, even broader than that, it's the climax of all the Old Testament scriptures that have been written about the Savior. This central message of Scripture really pertains to what you might say the central mission or purpose of the church. Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? Why do we meet every Sunday? Why do we give of our time, our talent, our treasure to a place called the church? It seems obvious that some Christians don't think a lot about the purpose of the church. They don't quite understand maybe what the mission of the church is in this world. They think of the church as some local place that sits there on the corner and it's there to meet their own personal needs. That's why the church is there. So they'll attend the services occasionally when it's convenient. And they'll come and they'll take what they feel like taking. And they pretty much have little concern for anything else. They're involved in the local church only to the extent as to how it serves them personally. That's how a majority of people look at the church. They forget, they misunderstand that the Lord has given His church a purpose, a mission. And every believer that's part of the church should understand what that mission is. I think if you took a little quiz and asked yourself, what is the purpose of the church? You might rank something like fellowship. You might put that on the list. In other words, the the opportunity, the church gives me the opportunity to come together with other Christians and have fellowship, to have relationships that are hopefully nurtured and inspired by God's word. In there, maybe a little good food once in a while. A favorite verse for folks that enjoy fellowship would be something like John 13, 35, where Jesus himself said, By this all men will know you, know that you are my disciples, if you what? Have love one for another. 
So please understand, fellowship is something that's part of the local church, and it should be, and it's important. Maybe other people might say, well, not so much into the fellowship, but it has to be sound teaching, doctrinal teaching. That's what the church is all about, to teach, to have people under the teaching of God's Word so that they're revealed to His truth. And they wouldn't be wrong in saying that. The Bible itself says that God gave some apostles, some prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, stature to which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4. Or maybe you might say, no, I think the church exists for worship, for praising God. That maybe the church is a community that praises and exalts the Lord in adoration and in reverence. I mean, that's, that's clearly part of the church. No one would argue with that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, Worthy art thou, O Lord, and our God. In Revelation, it says that. To, re- to receive glory and honor and power. And thou did create all things because of thy will they exist and were created. Paul even declared in, in Ephesians 1 that we are predestined. God predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Also says there in Ephesians 3, to him be the glory in the church, to Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. See, I want you to understand this morning that the supreme purpose, the supreme understanding of the church has to come out of what motivates us. What motivates us as Christians? Is it just us doing our own thing when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and hopefully maybe it works out and it's successful? See, I think you have to come to the simple understanding that the supreme purpose and motivation of every individual And every body of believers, i.e. the church, is to what? Glorify God. That should be the motivation. That's why we fellowship. That's why we have spiritual teaching. That's why we offer our praise and worship to God. But out of that motivation, I want you to understand, that's where the purpose comes for the church. I mean, if you think back into the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned and that fellowship was breached with God, he was spiritually separated from his Creator. And since that very day, man in his natural fallen state has been trying to hide from God. And God has been in the business of calling men and women back to himself. It's always been God who initiates the invitation. It's always God who took the initiative to restore men to righteousness. Even in the garden, you remember the first call to to Adam. Where are you? You can follow that all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17. When it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Come. There's always an invitation by God to a lost and dying world.
And so we have to understand that our motivation is, is out of a drive, a desire to bring God glory. When sinners are saved, God is glorified. So I would kind of conclude there that the purpose of the church is simply to draw all men to the Savior, to make disciples, to seek and to save that which is lost. I mean, God has been issuing that invitation from the dawning of time, and he'll continue to do it until the final judgment. And it's all for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. There's no glory in our salvation for ourselves. You're mixed up theologically if you think somehow you found God. You're mixed up theologically if you think somehow you made the decision to follow Christ. The Bible says that he draws us. That he is the initiator of our salvation. And the supreme way in which God chose to glorify himself wasn't through fellowship, it wasn't through teaching, it wasn't through praise and worship. It was through the redemptive plan of a sinful mankind. And he allows us to participate in that redemptive plan. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And Paul goes on, he says, And he has committed to us, the church, the word of reconciliation. I mean, even angels, the Bible says, long into this salvation that we have because angels can't be saved. Nothing so much glorifies God as is his gracious redemption of the damned, of those who are on their way to hell, the people who are, are hell-bound, and God somehow reaches down and he plucks them out of that group by his grace. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that it's never been God's will for any person to perish. It says, but for all to come to repentance. Does that mean that everybody's going to get saved? No. But that's God's desire. That's what his desire is. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, God's heart has always yearned, it's always been heavy to bring sinful, rebellious men back to himself. He's not like a human being who, if we get offended by somebody, sometimes, you know, you just cut them off. I'm not going to deal with that person anymore. It's not the right way to do it, but we do it. God doesn't do that. He wants to draw that person back and give them a new righteous and eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. I mean, it's the verse of the Bible that we see at sporting events, and we quote so often John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul rejoiced, and he said this, that God's grace is spreading to more and more people. That may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. When people are saved, beloved, God is glorified. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul even tells us as Christians, he he admonishes the Corinthian believers and all Christians. He says, whatever you do, do all for the what? Glory of God. See, there's, there's, there's no uh, ego here in this Christianity in which we live. We shouldn't look at ourselves as some spiritual giant and look down on people who are, are mere babes in Christ. That's, that's not the proper perspective to have. The proper perspective is to understand that we're all in this mix together. 
I don't care if you're an elder, a deacon, a pastor, a worship leader, whatever, just someone who helps out in the church somewhere. It doesn't matter. We're all on the same plane. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. And don't let anybody ever tell you anything different. As sinners who are forgiven and were transformed from, it says, death to life, from darkness to light. That's a miracle that only God can do in the human heart. And God is glorified through that gracious miracle. And he provided. He was willing to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the ultimate price so that he might receive glory, that we might receive salvation. So you have to conclude that if you're a believer and you desire to glorify God, you want to honor God's supreme will and purpose, it should be on your top of your priority list that, you know what? I have to share God's love. I have to share God's forgiveness to a lost and dying world because, you know what? That's what God's all about. That's the purpose. The Bible says that Christ came into the world that he loved, and it says that he sought to win sinners to himself for the Father's glory. Should we do any different if we're called Christians, if we're little Christ, if we're followers of Christ? Likewise, he sends us out into a lost and dying world, and he says, go make disciples. In John 17, he He prayed this, his high priestly prayer, Christ prayed this, this is eternal life, that they may know thee and only the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorify thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. John 19.10, it tells us what the work was. Christ came in his incarnation to glorify the Father, and he has the same purpose to seek and to save that which is lost. So that's the supreme purpose of the church. It's not fellowship, it's not praise and worship, it's not teaching. All that falls aside as the purpose of evangelism, the purpose of making disciples rises to the top. In John 17, 18, Jesus himself said this, as thou didst send me into the world, Jesus said to the Father. He said, I have also sent them, speaking of the disciples, believers, into the world. If you stop and think about it, if God's purpose for the church would have been fellowship, as soon as we're saved, we're out of here, right? Same thing with teaching. If if God's purpose was for us to have a perfect uh, teaching mind and everything, the minute we're saved, we're out of here. Or if it was for praise and worship, the minute we're saved, we're out of here because there's no better place to have fellowship, to receive and understand God perfectly and to worship and and have praise for him than in heaven. See, that's why it's not the purpose of the church because we're still here after we're saved. Sometimes I wish it wasn't that way. Wouldn't that be a little bit of uh, encouragement? You know, when, when someone comes to Christ, all of a sudden, boom, they're just gone. Kind of like a little mini rapture right there before you. That'd be kind of weird. But that's not what God did. He left us here, and he calls us the church. And I think what happens, that we get preoccupied with these other things. I think many Christians are fascinated with the process but they have no thought for the goal. They're preoccupied with the spiritually insignificant things, and yet we show very little commitment to reach the lost. I mean, our church is blessed in so many different ways to be able to share the word of God with a lost and dying world. Whether it's through the church, when you invite someone here on a Sunday morning, hopefully they're going to hear the gospel. Not hopefully, I know they'll hear the gospel. 
at some point in time. Somebody's going to stand behind this pulpit, open up a Bible, and read Scripture that's going to speak to their heart. It's not in the words of men that we're saved. We're not a church that puts a high priority on men's wisdom. We put the priority right where it needs to lie, in the Word of God, in the power of the Gospel. But I often wonder some, sometimes if we get a little self-centered, even as Christians in this wonderful church in which we participate in fellowship and teaching and praise and worship together. I wonder if sometimes we forget that there's a world out there that's lost and dying and needs to hear the gospel. And then when we leave these four word, these four walls, that's when ministry begins. That's when the purpose begins. And I think as individuals, we need to stop. If we believe this is the purpose for the church, not just our church, for the church of Christ, for the evangelization, for the the making of disciples. If that's the case, how are we doing? How are we doing personally with that? Are we focused on getting the better job, getting the better salary, getting the bigger house or the nicer car? Or do we understand that, you know what? For the gospel to be presented to the lost and dying. Sometimes God will choose to use our time, our talent, and our treasure. Someone asked me one time, what's your, what's your uh, plan for retirement? I said, I don't have one. Well, what do you mean? I said, I don't have one. I pray that one day I'll just drop dead in the pulpit or in my study or something. I'll be out of here. i got a life insurance policy. Hopefully that'll take care of my wife. But other than that, I'm not too much worried about retirement. I can't imagine just walking away from what God has entrusted you to do, saying, you know what? I'm just a little tired. 65, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down now and, and just kind of do nothing. can't imagine that. And yet so many times, the world in which we're in, that's what they press us towards. Rather than investing in something glorious in eternity, we're too worried about having our little nest egg, being able to just have security here in this world where we're called pilgrims and sojourns and kind of temporary residents at best. I think it's about time the church of, of God really stopped and looked at their own priorities and the way they use their time, their talent, and their treasure. Because sometimes we get sidetracked. There's a story told by J.D. Gordon. It's talking about a group of amateur climbers who plan to ascend the mountain, Mount Mont Blanc in the French Alps. And on the evening before the climb, he gathered everybody together who was going to be on this climb because it was an extremely difficult climb. And he said this, that one could reach the top only by taking the necessary equipment for climbing. And you have to leave everything else that's unnecessarily, unnecessary behind. And one rather young athletic man discounted the guy's advice and he thought, you know, this is ridiculous. So he showed up the next morning and he had his blanket. He had a case of wine. He had a camera, a set of notebooks, a pocket full of snacks. And even though the guide warned him over and over, this strong-willed man said, hey, you know what? You don't know what you're talking about. I can handle this. And he took off ahead of the, the group and started up the climb with all this stuff. And as the other climbers proceeded up the mountainside, they began to notice various articles left by the path. First, they noticed the young man's food and wine. 
short while later, his notebooks and his camera and his lenses. Finally, the blanket was there, strewn along the side of the path. And when they got to the top, the young man was there. But only because he had left everything else behind. And applying that illustration, he says this. He says, unlike that young climber who eventually paid the price for success, many Christians, when they discover they can't reach the top with their loads, they simply stop climbing. And they settle down along the mountainside. And he closes that little story and he says, there's many tents down in the valley as a result. See, we need to be reminded, beloved, that this is not our home. Are we investing in eternity with our time, our talent, our treasure? Do we understand the purpose of the church is to reach out to a lost and dying world with the gospel of Christ? Not only here in Redwood City, but around the world. Through the missionaries we support. When's the last time you took a list of the missionaries and, and started praying for them? Sending them cards. Encouraging them. These people are in foreign lands oftentimes. Or even, even the missionaries that we have who are retired. Who spent their entire life on a mission field somewhere. And now they're just waiting to die. I'm sure they would enjoy a card or a note to let them know that we're praying for them. See, the purpose of the church is to make disciples. And in our text here this morning, we see basically five different things that allow that to take place. And the first one is availability. It says there in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. The church's purpose is to make disciples. But you know what? You have to be available to do that. Someone once said, the greatest ability is availability. You can be the most gifted and talented Christian. But you know what? You're going to be useless to God if you don't make yourself available for His use. And the disciples were no different. They needed to be available. See, faithful discipleship does not begin with, 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 with simply knowing where you'll be serving or in what capacity. It doesn't start with having a clear call to certain ministry. It always begins with the simple thing that you're available. That's how I began in ministry. I went to Bible college. I didn't know, you know, Moses from Abraham. Slightest idea. Went through Bible college, learned some things. And as a result of the school's curriculum, you had to do an internship at a local church. So I was able to find a local church, and they were looking for somebody to teach their senior high group. I thought, okay, I guess I can do that. Went over, did the interview. They said, yeah, sure, you know, come on Sunday. Okay, great. Showed up on Sunday. The pastor said, basically, here's the curriculum. The kids are downstairs. See you in an hour. I was like, whoa, okay. Get downstairs, only to find out the pastor's older son is teaching the group. Hey, what do I do? Am I, what's going on here, you know? And I just kind of hung out for a couple of weeks and got to know them. But all of a sudden, God began to kind of prick my heart and begin to realize, well, this is a pretty neat ministry, this Sunday school stuff, whatever they call it, youth ministry or whatever. And it was out of that I spent 15 years as a youth pastor. I didn't go to college to become a youth pastor. But I was just available, and God said, here, I'm going to put you here. You need to learn a lot of stuff. So I'm going to put you as an associate pastor in about four or five church, four churches, and you're going you're gonna to watch what the, the pastor does, and you're going to you know, just kind of support him. 
And that's what I did. After I left my, the last church I was a youth pastor in, I was working with the DA's office, loved the job. A lot of perks, had retirement, had my own car, had a little badge I could carry in my wallet. Pretty neat stuff. Kind of fun to go up to a gated community and flash the little badge at the guard and say, DA, I got a, I got a business inside. Oh, no problem, sir. Go right in. I'll never forget the day we got the letter from Grace Bible Church in the mail. I don't know how they got a hold of me. But my wife said, hey, church sent you a letter. That's nice. <laughs> it sat there on the counter for probably a day or two. My wife said, I don't know why. We haven't even opened up the letter yet. Just saw the address there, Redwood City. I don't even know where Redwood City was. And I thought, my wife said, you know, I don't know why, and you may think I'm crazy, but I've been praying, and I think we're going to go, and we're going to end up at that church. I said, what are you, are you nuts? What are you, I mean, look it, I got this job, I got this, you know, I'm not going back into that. And I didn't know even what they wanted. Finally, after a couple days, opened the letter, and said they would be interested in talking about, not a youth pastor, but a pastor. That's interesting, but, you know, I like my job. (laughs) But you know what? God spoke directly through his word to my heart. And he just said, you know what? I didn't call you to work in a DA's office and carry a little badge. That's not what I called you to do. I called you to minister to God's people in some form or fashion. Are Are you... Willing to do that. God, I don't know where this place is. You know, we moved down here. Now we got to move back. It's kind of crazy. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And out of that, you know, after about nine months, ended up coming here. But I was available. I was just willing to say, you know what, God, if this is your will, and this is a door that you're opening, even though I'm a little hesitant, and by the way, the church was a little hesitant too on their end, They had gone through kind of a hard time. So I thought, what better way to learn? What better way to come in and just kind of do what God's called me to do? And we'll grow together. That's been almost 15 years ago. And, And beloved, I can't imagine being anywhere else. But it came out of the simple fact that I wanted to be available to God. And this isn't about me. It's about all of us as believers saying, you know what? That's the first line we have to cry. Am I available to God? And then it says, secondly there, not only did they go to the mountain, they were available and they went. And this wasn't directly right after the the resurrection. There's probably weeks that went in, in between here. Jesus out meeting, greeting different people. But in verse 17, it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. We don't even know what mountain it was. It doesn't tell us. And that's the second element here, really. If you're going to fulfill the Great Commission, if we're going to have a church that's purposeful in winning the lost, not only do we have to be available, but we have to understand what it means to worship God. See, when God is is not truly worshipped, he can't be truly served. That's his bottom line. No matter how talented, no matter how gifted, no matter how well-intentioned your service may be, if you're not doing it out of a worshipful heart, then don't do it. It says, the moment Jesus appeared, the disciples saw him and they worshipped him. They prostrated themselves in humble adoration before their divine Lord and Savior. I mean, think about it. They've been on this emotional roller coaster. You know, yeah, he's the Messiah, he's the king. We're riding into Jerusalem. Everybody's saying, Hosanna in the highest. And then by Friday, he's hanging on a cross and he's dead. And then they all scatter, and then, lo and behold, he comes out of the grave. 
And now he's called a personal meeting with, I don't think it was just the disciples here. I think it was where the Bible speaks about at one time he appeared to over 500. I think this is the meeting that we're talking about right here. But look at what it says at the end of that verse. But some what? Some doubted. Some of Christ's own followers doubted what they were seeing. Now maybe, obviously they hadn't seen him in his glorified state, so that'd be a little different, I think. Maybe they were far away. We don't know why they doubted. I don't think this was a a doubt that drives them away from Christ. I think it was a doubt that, that drew them closer to Christ. See, sometimes when we talk about doubt, we think of it as a negative. Sometimes doubt can actually be a good thing. Because in verse 18 it says, And Jesus came and said to them, He came to them, He continued to approach them. As he kind of they looked at his divine perfection in his glorified state. They didn't know what they were seeing exactly. But there was hundreds of people here, no doubt. Other believers were present. But I like the fact that a number of them worshipped him. And almost as if to alleviate their doubt, it says Jesus came up and he spoke to them. Whatever the doubt was, whatever doubt you're carrying today, you know what, if you're, if you're truly asking God to reveal himself to your heart, he'll remove that doubt. It may not happen right away. It may take a little bit of investigation on your part. It may take a little time in God's word. But I know several people who started out trying to disprove Christianity only to, in the end, come to understand that it's the truth. That God is who he said he is. That Jesus is who he said he is. And he did what he said he did. And that that salvation is available to them. Here they're in the presence of the living God. The complete focus is on Christ. Is that what we're focused on when we come to worship him? On a Sunday morning? Or are we worried about what's for lunch? Or how the 49ers are doing? Or... I got this list I got to do after church. Do we come here Sunday mornings knowing that whoever stands behind this pulpit is going to open up the glorious, authoritative, perfect word of God and and give us understanding concerning it? Does that excite you? I hope it does. Because if it excites you, hopefully you make a little preparation before you get here Sunday morning. You don't just drag yourself in and plop yourself down and hope somebody says something or a song, something gets you through the service. Do you ever go on a trip, vacation, kind of excited about it? The day's getting closer, closer. The night before your trip, got all the bags packed. They're out in the the hallway there, wherever you, you go to load the car up, whoever's picking you up, whatever the situation is, but you're excited, you got everything, you're, you're going over that in your mind. The night before, did I get this, did I get, did I forget anything, I check that list again. I don't know about you, but I, I don't sleep real good a night before a, a big trip like that, because I'm excited. Now we're going to go to the airport, we're going to get on a plane, this is going to be cool. We're going to drive somewhere, we're going to spend time together with family, whatever it might be. You plan and you purpose that you get the most out of that trip because it's a special time. I hope Saturday night doesn't leave you staring at a TV till 2 a.m. or at a computer screen till 3 a.m. Trying to figure out something for work or something for this or something for that. I pray that 
When Saturday afternoon comes, you realize that this is the day before we get to gather together with God's people on Sunday morning and hear the Word of God taught and to fellowship and to have praise and worship of our Almighty God. We get to do that together in a place called Grace Bible Church. Wow! We don't even have to set anything up. It's all right here for us. And we get to be part of that. I hope that's what's in your heart. Because if it's not... There's a problem. There's a problem. Because when you walk out of these four walls, if you don't have excitement before you get here, the likelihood of you having any kind of excitement about your faith when you leave is very unlikely. The task here Sunday morning is to equip the saints of God for the work of the ministry through the teaching of His Word, through fellowship and through praise and worship. So worship plays a big part of that. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He said, I'm determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then he goes on in Philippians chapter 3 and he says that we should know Him, know Christ, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, that we should be conformed to His death. And in 121, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Third aspect of this is, he says there in verse 18, all authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See, the third element for being effective in the purpose of the church, making disciples, it's really implied here by that word authority has the idea, attitude of submission. If you have authority, then you either have somebody who's rebelling against authority or in submission to authority. See, his declaration here is on his sovereign lordship. But it also kind of indicates that believers have to respond to his rule. Before the Lord states the Great Commission, he establishes his authority, his divine authority to command it. See, it's because of his authority, his sovereign power, that his followers have the attitude of submission to his will. That word authority refers to the freedom and right to speak as one pleases. In other words, Jesus is saying, nobody tells me what to say. I have authority. In relationship to God, that freedom and that right are absolute, they're unlimited. And he says, all authority, not just some, but all authority over heaven and earth the sovereign authority given to Jesus Christ by His heavenly Father is absolute and it's universal. He is Lord. We don't make Him Lord. He already is Lord. When you come to Christ, you're just acknowledging His Lordship. The school I went to, we had a speaker come from Dallas Theological Seminary and he taught a whole series on Discipleship. It's actually the president of the, the Dallas Theological Seminary now, I believe, or he was. And he did this really cool study on discipleship. And his conclusion was this that when you come to Christ, you can be a believer, a follower of Christ without being his disciple. And he took certain verses and he would say, well, the Bible says that, uh, you know, all can come. But then it also throws in kind of conditions there, except a one. So he made this delineation between a believer and a disciple of Christ. And I remember looking at the notes I wrote, and I thought, this is pretty slick, this is pretty interesting. I never thought of it that way, that you could actually be saved and not be a follower of Christ. And I thought, I said, wait, what am I saying? Because that's not right. Christ 
demands all or nothing. You can't just come to God, to Christ for salvation and say, okay, but I don't want to follow him yet. No, it doesn't work that way. He is Lord. And that leads to the next point here, obedience. He says in verse 19 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, Christ, before he gives this command, this great commission as we know it, he has to establish his absolute authority. I mean, think if you were at your job and you were sitting in a boardroom and somebody walked in and you didn't recognize the person from anybody that works in the company. But he just started talking. He just started talking about the changes he was going to make and, okay, now here's what we're going to do. I mean, at some point, somebody probably said, excuse me, who are you? (laughs) Right? Because if they're nobody, why are we listening to them? Christ had to establish his authority first. And we have to understand that we need to submit to his sovereign authority. It's not an option. It's a supreme obligation. It's not negotiable. It's not adjustable to your own inclination or your own plans or your own purpose. It's rather the attitude that says with absolute sincerity of heart, you know what, whatever the Lord tells me to do, I'm going to do it. Think of the great people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you know, when, when they came up to a, a certain situation, whether it was building a, an ark when there wasn't even any rain, or whether it was slaying their own son, or whether it was leaving a land and, and going to somewhere that God didn't even tell them where to go. Because they were followers of God, they had a reverence for God. They respected his authority and his sovereignty. They said, yeah, I'll do it without question. Is that in your heart? Are you willing to be obedient to God, to do whatever he tells you to do? Sure, there's availability, worship, and submission. But when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, that the, the word here, the transitional word is therefore. What he's saying is, because I am the sovereign Lord, because I am the risen king of the universe, I have the authority to command you to be my witnesses. And I have the power to enable you to obey that command. See, we don't want to be, unfortunately, like the nation of Israel. God came to the nation of Israel with his word. And his plan, I believe, was to to use the nation of Israel to reach the rest of the world. But when they were encountered their Messiah, they rejected it. So that responsibility falls to the church. It falls to those who are following Christ. Now one day Israel will come back and they will repent. I'm sure we'll hear some of that next week. But he says here, in light of my authority, I'm commanding you to go make disciples of all nations. That word, make disciples, is the main verb. John 8, 31, it says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. In John 6, verse 66, we can see where some disciples were not true. Some people followed Christ for the wrong reasons. That word disciple is basically a follower. It simply refers to believing, to to, to learning, to following Christ. A person who is not Christ's true disciple does not belong to him and is not saved. When a person genuinely confesses Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that he is immediately saved. He's immediately made a disciple. He's immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Not to be Christ's disciple is therefore not to be Christ at all. Don't fall into the trap of believing there's different levels of those who are in Christ. The Great Commission is a command that 
we should bring unbelievers throughout the world to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we should be willing to do whatever it takes. And then he tells us here what we need to do. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That word, go, is not the command. The word is, the, the command is make disciples as you are going. It's not saying you have to pray about going to some foreign country and giving up everything. No, it's saying, you know what, as you go out, you leave these four walls and you go out to your family or to your relatives or to your workplace or, or to your, uh, where you have fellowship with other people outside, sporting events, whatever it may be. As you're going, you make the disciples. That should be what's on our heart. Because as we're going, I don't know about you, but out in this lost and dying world, you run into unbelievers, you run into people who are not Christ followers all the time. And they need to hear the gospel. Some say, if this was such a a crucial thing, why did Jesus only mention it once? Well, he, he, he only mentioned be fruitful and multiply once too doesn't mean it's not important. I would even argue that the way reproduction is so important to carrying on society, the call to make disciples is stated only once because it's natural for the new creation to be reproductive. It's natural for a new believer to want to tell other believers about their newfound faith. That's just the natural thing to do. Think back when you first came to Christ. How excited you were when you tasted of that heavenly gift. When you realized that Christ, God through Christ had forgiven all your sins and He made you a new person. And, and man, now you can start this whole thing over. Clean slate. And you began to share with family and friends, maybe not in the best, most polite way. And you need to get saved or you're going to burn in hell. Don't you understand what I'm telling you? Maybe you turned people off. Maybe you took them by surprise. Maybe they thought you were a little weird. I'd take that over a Christian that's been a Christian for years and just kind of asleep in their faith any day. I think we need to be a little more offensive for the cause of Christ, to be honest with you. We need to be a little more on the offense when we leave these four walls. Strategically understanding what it means to share the gospel with those who have yet to hear it. But the first requirement is very clear, and that's to go. These are all participles. To be translated, having gone. Having gone. Where have you gone and shared the gospel? Where have you reached out to? You don't have to go to another country to find lost people. You can find them right next door to you. The second requirement there for making disciples, it says very clearly, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To baptize literally means to immerse in water. That's what the term means. There's different forms of baptism that has been performed by various Jewish groups as a symbol of spiritual cleansing. Even the baptism of John was a baptism that symbolized repentance of sin and turning to God. But see, as Christ instituted this, baptism became more of an outward act of identifying with Him through faith. It became a visible public testimony that you belong to Christ now. And in their society, beloved, that was a big deal. Because maybe people wouldn't do business with you anymore. Maybe your family would kick you out. You can go down the list. Maybe you'd be shunned in the marketplace if you were a Christ follower. But I want you to understand here this morning, the initial act of obedience to Christ after salvation throughout Scripture is to submit to baptism as a testimony 
of your union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Paul says this, Do you not know, he's asking the Roman believers, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. See, it's a picture. Baptism is a picture of that. When we fill this tub up and someone comes to Christ and they say, should I get baptized? Yeah, you should get baptized. Well, can't you just sprinkle some? No, I'm not going to sprinkle some water on your head. The word means baptism. It means to go down into the water. Jesus himself went down into the water. It's a picture of being buried with Christ and being raised anew. You say, well, I, I came to Christ a long time ago, but I've never been baptized. Well, then you, you need to, I wouldn't even say you need to pray about that. You need to get baptized. You need to come up after the service and say, you know what, I've never been baptized. Can we do it? Sure. We can do it. Warm water, nice And he says their baptism should be done, this isn't a prescription, the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's the only place, really, that that is said. In other places, they're the name of Christ. He's not given a formula. But I think it's a good one, because it speaks of the Trinity. The third requirement here for making disciples of all nations He says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching. That's what we do here every Sunday. We take the word of God and hopefully impart it from the preacher's heart to you. Hopefully giving a plain understanding of the scripture that we're reading. We need to be reminded that doctrine is not a bad word. We're praying about after the first of the year getting a group of men together for that very express purpose to go through a systematic theology together as men. I mean, yeah, we can get together and we can talk about money, we can talk about family, we can talk about, you know, different things, communication skills. But I'm thinking, you know what? If we're not communicating the word of God in some form or fashion, if we're not giving you something you can stand on and, and your, build your faith upon, then what are we doing? Be praying about that. Be praying, men, as, as you pray about your involvement in something like that. I think that's just very elementary to being in Christ, to being fed. So we need to be focused on the going Making disciples who you have to go, you have to, once they're saved, baptize them. That's very clear. And then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the last element here of the Great Commission is simply power. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I heard one pastor one day, he said, that's why I don't fly. It says, lo, I am with you always. You get up there in a plane and I don't know. Obviously, that's kind of a crazy statement to make. But I think if we don't do this great commission in the power of God, and we don't understand that God is with us when we go out and we share his word. You know, when you go out and you share the gospel with someone who's yet to hear, is there a chance they might reject you? Sure. Is there a chance they might make fun of you? Sure. But do you know that this verse says that he is right there with you? I mean, think if Jesus was here physically with you and said, you know what, let's go across the street and talk to this neighbor guy. We wanna, I want to share him the gospel of Christ. Would you say, oh, I don't know, Jesus, I'm a little, little timid. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. No, you're with the, the, the God who created everything around you. You're with the one who was risen from the dead himself. He He's the one who gave blind or gave sight to the blind, healed lepers. If Jesus wanted to take you across the street to share Christ with your neighbor, you'd probably go. You'd probably be, I wonder what's going to happen. This is going to be cool. What's he going to do, you know? Well, I want you to believe that Jesus is with you 
Maybe not physically. Because it says he's at the right hand of the Father, but he's definitely with us spiritually through the power of the Spirit. We don't go out and evangelize on our own power. When it says always, that means all the days. That means the days of your life. From the day you come to Christ to the day you die, and even through eternity, God is with you. Christ is with you. He never leaves you. It's even a promise he makes. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That, that power is available to us to the end of the age. I want to just remind us this morning that if this, these four verses were the whole book of Matthew, that's what it's working up to, I want us just to remind ourselves that evangelism, that, that sharing Christ with the lost, that seeking and saving the lost. There's different methods to do that. Find one that works for you and do it. Don't wait. Don't let somebody else do it. No, we're all called into this together, beloved. And when you look at you, your time, your talent, and your treasure, ask yourself, am I investing in eternity or am I just investing in the here and now? Am I seeing God use my resources for his glory? Or am I just using my resources for my own glory? God will show you what the right thing to do is. I pray that he will speak to all of our hearts. Father, we ask this morning that as we close, I just want to close with this illustration. I know that many of us probably heard this before, but it just so succinctly puts what we're talking about. The purpose of the church. The illustration reads as follows, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. And the building was just a hut. And there was only one boat, but a few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for their own safety they went out day and night tirelessly rescuing the lost many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station so much so that it became famous some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with this station and they wanted to give of their time and their money and effort for the support of its work. So they pooled their efforts together and new, bought, new boats were bought and crews were trained and the little life station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the, the building was so crude and poorly, poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and the beds and they put in better furniture in the larger building. And now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully and they furnished it exquisitely because they used it kind of like a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. And about this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty they were sick. And the beautiful new club was now <laughs> considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower built outside the club where the victims of the shipwrecks could at least get cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership, and most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activity because they were a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted on 
life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that there were still a life-saving station after all. They were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people shipwrecked on those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And that's what they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and another life-saving station was founded. History continues to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent. They're still frequent, but most of the people drown. Beloved, it's easy for the church to lose sight of the purpose that God gave it. Father, we ask that that would not be the case here. Lord, I pray for each of us that's here this morning as we've worked our way through the Gospel of Matthew this many years. I pray that with the faithfulness of those people who stood with the Lord that day on that hillside in Galilee, and as they heard that great commission, and as they willingly went, Lord, we here today are the fruit of their obedience. I pray that there would be a generation after us who will be the fruit of our going. Help us to deal with our lives, our time, our money, our opportunities, everything that you've entrusted to us. Help us to put it in perspective of the, using that for the sake of the Savior and eternity. To know that we're only here for one reason. To make disciples to share the good news of the gospel with those that are lost. And if we miss that, we miss everything. Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself. Lord, that they would be obedient to your call. That they would yield their life to you. Lord, this isn't about just joining a church or Lord, it's about their salvation. It's about understanding that one day they will die, they will leave this place, and they will be ushered into eternity. And either that place will be heaven or hell. And the question that will separate those two places will be, what did you do with my son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you follow him or did you reject him? There's no gray area, there's no middle ground. I pray that you would come to Christ this morning. In your heart, just cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to know this Jesus that they talk about. He'll answer that prayer when it's prayed in a, from a heart of faith, sincerely. Help us to remind ourselves as Christians, Lord, as we leave this place today, that we would do our due diligence to share the word with those we come across, whether it's at lunch at a restaurant or the garbage man that picks up our garbage or the people that pump the gas, the clerk at the store we frequent. Help us to have a burden for the lost. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name.